Welcome to the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Allen. This week, I spoke with Rich Smith, Director of Labs at Duo Labs, the research arm of Duo Security. In this podcast episode, we'll be talking about the benefits of adopting agile application security practices, changing how security teams measure success, and crafting and maintaining a security culture in your organization. Enjoy the show. Hi, Rich. Thanks for joining me. Hi, there. Uh, so today we're going to talk about agile application security, security culture, and using external reviews. Sounds let's, good. Let's start with a brief introduction. How did you begin working in security? Uh, it feels a long time ago now. Um, I guess I've been working in security well over 15 years now. I, I think it it really stemmed from a, a realization that I uh, probably enjoyed doing security and breaking things more than anything else I was doing. Uh, at the time, I was studying a chemistry degree. Uh, when I started to get paid for doing security work and um, kind of evolved from there. So it's fair to say I was, I was self-taught. I think it's a polite way of, of saying you know, how I kind of stumbled into a lot of the areas of security that I enjoyed. And um, you know, I think it steadily grew as a, from a hobby to being something that I realized I could actually you know, make a legitimate career out of and nothing, nothing like pointing you in the direction of something else then when you've done a chemistry degree and you never want to do chemistry again. So <laughs> did my chemistry degree and then decided that I needed to find my way into security um, as quickly as possible. Um, I definitely was happier there and um, managed to get into that, went into the master's in the UK. This was so at a, a university called Royal Holloway, which is part of the University of London. I went and did a master's there and was set to go on and do my PhD and uh, had an internship with Hewlett Packard Research Labs and uh, never really left the, the research lab to go back and do my internship. So got offered a full-time position there and continued my research with them and then bounced between a number of different companies in the space. But I guess that was the, that was the start, right? flunking out of a PhD and into, uh, into a research lab. Huh, that's really interesting. I love how in security, especially with the relative sort of newness of security as a realm, that we have all these different backgrounds. But I have to say, I think you're the first person I've spoken to that said chemistry was your uh, yeah, area yeah. of study. Theor- but how fascinating. Theoretical chemistry and theoretical physics. So uh, it was very non-chemistry or physics. It was more just computing and maths. So I guess it was a smaller step to, to hacking from, from there. But yeah, it was fun. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what your role is now? Yeah, sure. I work for Duo Labs, which is the research arm of Duo Security, and I'm the director of labs. So I help keep the program all together and, and you know, can keep the research structured, um, help the, the various different teams that we have in labs kind of stay on target, as well as continue to pursue my own research. Sometimes that's by myself and sometimes that's with, uh, with other people in the labs as well. So I definitely like to keep at least a hand in my, in my technical side and not just become you know, an all-out manager. It seems to be going pretty well so far. It sounds like it gives you a lot of balance where you get to still have that managerial role, but pursue your own interests and uh, still get to, as you said, dabble in the technology side of things. Yeah, I think I'd probably go a little bit crazy if I if I wasn't able to, to still keep a hand in the technical side, I'd probably go a little bit stir crazy. So um, it's a nice balance at the moment. And obviously the managerial side of, of labs is, is probably a little bit different than managerial sides of some other parts of security that I've also worked in. So even when I'm doing managerial stuff, it's still very you know focused on research and discovery, and it still feels very creative every day. So even the managerial side is not that bad. Ah, oh, fantastic. Well, you recently co-authored a book entitled Agile Application Security for us here at O'Reilly um, with some pretty fantastic folks, I might add. And when we create content, we're usually looking to solve a problem for a specific audience. So can you give us a little bit of context about who the audience for your book was and 
sort of what problems you were trying to help them solve by writing the book? Yeah, sure. And so it's, it's a good question because this is, this is a, a book that I believe actually has two audiences in mind and, and hopefully we're serving each of those audiences equally well. And you, know, you said that the co-authors that I had the privilege to write this with um, were fantastic folks and they, they really are. I learned a lot through the authoring process um, as, uh, you know, as, as, as much as anything else. So if I was learning as I was writing the book from, from the co-authors, hopefully people that are reading um, will as well. And those two audiences that we were trying to you know, provide some, some support to, were the agile practitioners that you know, they know agile inside out, they're developers day in, day out, and they're, you know, they're doing amazing things very rapidly and really pushing out products and new features you know, as they come to mind. And from our experience, we could see that there was a lot of misunderstanding with that group around like what security, what function security actually fulfilled uh, at a company, what's its purpose, you know, what are the things that are driving these security people that just seem to be getting in our way all the time. So part of the audience is very much as agile practitioners that are great at what they do and know, which is the agile world, um, but maybe less familiar with some of the motivations and reasons behind you know, the work that a security team would do. And in many ways, those the agile world and the security world can sometimes kind of clash a little bit. So we were trying to educate the agile developers and practitioners around some of the things that security folks care about. And then on the flip side, you know, provide a, an, an equal education to security teams who might not really have a full appreciation for what is actually behind kind of a lot of the agile acronyms. You know, why is it important to develop in these agile ways using some, some different methodologies? Some central things to those agile methodologies, which mean that you're not going to plan out your entire waterfall process ahead of time with UML charts. And you know, there's going to be a lot of problem solving that's done as the project progresses. And there's a lot of advantages to that, but there's also security challenges that comes with that. So we're trying to kind of bridge that gap between these two um, groups that inevitably have to work together, but probably don't have the best understanding of each other's worlds um, or worldviews. And you know, from, from the four authors that were on the book, I think we spanned kind of a good range from people that were purely security. And, and I would kind of put myself in that background. You know, I've, I've never been uh, an agile coach or anything like that, but have worked with many agile teams. And then people that are you know, deeply, deeply knowledgeable about Agile. Um, and, you know, Michael, one of the co-authors, he, you know, he knows more about Agile than, than I ever will. And Jim and Laura, also along that scale between security and Agile. So together, we, you know, we had a good range of experience. And I think we can speak to both audiences pretty well because from the four co-authors, we, you know, I think we worked with both of those groups frequently and understand from our own, our own mistakes, quite honestly, you know, things that we tried and worked and things that we tried and didn't. And, and hopefully we've got at least some of that across in the pages. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot happening there. We've got these two audiences coming together, but it sounds like there's also both technical aspects and sort of cultural or soft skill aspects. Yeah, um, and I think that was that was another way that there was a huge amount of common ground between the co-authors on the, on the book. So we all had various different technical areas of expertise and experience, but I think we also had a very common view or collective view of some of the problems that were facing security in general. And the high-level summary of, of that bigger problem, uh, from my perspective, is that security is often spoken about and has been tackled from a solution perspective, um, really just focused on the technical aspects. You know, what, what is the, the solution? What's the one, bo uh, one new box that I can buy that solves this problem? What technology can I throw at security to make it go away and so it's not a problem anymore? And I fundamentally believe that that's only solving half of the problem or only trying to address half of the problem. 
And the, the other side is is the human side, is that softer skills side that necessarily comes along with you know things like understanding that culture is important and that's something that you need to work on and, and, and nurture. Um, and you know, a good culture can can really make the difference between a strong security program and a non-existent one. And really within the book, we, we try to cover both of those in making sure that people were at the center of what you're doing um, from either a, a, you know, a security perspective or an agile perspective, but making things very people focused and not just trying to focus on the technology and assuming that the people side will take care of itself. And I think you know, that's definitely been a problem with some some other approaches to security that have gone on over the years, which have just been solely focused on the technical side. And again, hopefully in the pages, we've managed to at least raise questions for the readers around how they're thinking about the cultural sides of security, not just the technical sides. And I think if you're, you know, if you're making an effort on, on both areas, then you're going to have a much better um, return on the efforts that you're making than if you just focus on one or the other. So speaking of those return on investment or return on your efforts here, I would imagine some of the benefits here are speed, but I would also imagine that you're going to ultimately end up with better security if you adopt some of these practices, correct? Uh, that would be my hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I, I, I think you know, better security is, is certainly one outcome. And I would say less disruptive security as well. I would say if I put my agile hat on or you know, could stand in the shoes of an agile developer, I would say that they would have a lot of areas that they feel kind of security gets in the way. Um, and doesn't actually really help them or make the, the product or the company more secure. There's a lot of kind of busy work. And I think this comes from that, that lack of understanding of um, agile from the security camp and likewise of, of security from the agile camp. So some of those outcomes definitely more secure, but I would also say that one of the, one of the key outcomes should be less interference where it's not necessary into the agile process from security. So Definitely around kind of more harmonious working between these two groups. Um, both would be a, des a desired outcome. The speed aspect, maybe that's an aspect of, of the not getting in the way. It would be a shame if the agile process was slowed down purely at the expense of security and we weren't getting any tangible security benefits from that. And I think a lot of the areas that we discussed in the book help kind of evaluate some of those balances rather than just following a security mantra, actually stepping back and seeing how that security approach, which was being advocated for, what are the benefits of that? How does that actually impact rather than just doing what, you know, what you've been told to do, because that's the right way to do security in an agile uh, world? Does it actually make the difference that you want it to make? And thinking about that rather than just blindly following kind of security mantra. So yeah, I think it's that balance between the two, trying to come out with a much more secure end product, but also not trying to disrupt the process with activities under the name of security when they don't actually have that security benefit that, that you may hope. That makes a lot of sense. So you've already touched on this point a few times now, um, talking about culture. So let's be ex explicit about it. Why is it so important to get security culture right? Oh, that's a big question. For me, I think security culture really is the foundation upon which everything else builds. And one of the the core parts of that is understanding and trust. So if we do have these two groups that might be a little bit wary of each other, the agile group and the security group, you know, security group is just thinking that agile is um, you know, fast and loose and don't plan anything out. The agile folks think that you know, security just say no to everything and try and get in their way of releasing um, fast, innovative kind of new features and new products. There's a void of trust in between these two teams. They need to understand what's motivating each other. 
And you know, we need everybody across the company to be buying into the vision of security. And the security is not not a nice to have. It's it's a necessary part of doing business in the 21st century. And getting people on board with that vision that security is a shared responsibility. It can't just be delegated to a single person or a single team. And that you know everybody, whether they're a developer, whether they're um, you know, an ops engineer, whether they have no technical role within a company whatsoever, everyone can make a, a, an incredibly large impact to the security posture of that company, both positive and negative. And for me, a security culture is something that is this shared understanding that binds everybody within an organization together, understanding why security is important, why it shouldn't trump everything. And it is a consideration to be, to be weighed up against everything else. And really understand the motivations of how secure do we want to be? What is our security philosophy? You know, what are the approaches that we feel are the right way to go about security for this organization? And every security, sorry, every organization is different and has its own organizational culture. The security culture isn't a one size fits all. You can't just cookie cutter, take a security culture from, from one organization and drop it into another one in the same way that you can't take a, an overall organizational culture and drop it into a new business. It's specific to the people in the task at hand. But that understanding that security culture is that shared understanding between everyone as to why security is important and how we're going to go about doing it. I feel if that's not in place, it makes a lot of what follows much more difficult because you haven't built the foundation upon which people can begin to understand each other and you know, fill in those voids of trust and actually get people to empathize. You know, I work in security and I know it's a really hard job and I've had many roles within uh, within different parts of a security organization for different organizations, it's really hard. And, and I don't think there's necessarily a great understanding or empathy for that from many people because they've never been in that situation. And they just see the, the outcome of a lot of the security work, which feels like it's slowing things down and it's blocking and they're just saying no to everything. And sometimes that can be the case that the security team is actually maybe making the wrong calls or maybe being too draconian. And in other times, the calls that they've made could be entirely appropriate. And Trying to be able to tease those apart um, requires the security group to be doing some introspection and, and thinking about how they're approaching security at the organization. But it also requires you know, the organization to understand you know, what, what a difficult task securing um, you know, modern products and modern organizations is. It changes every day. You pretty much can't make everybody happy all the time. If you're in security, you're going to be annoying somebody. So seeding that empathy of, of what the job is, why it's important, and why it's important to the company as a whole. You know, if there was a decision that was made that, you know, slowed something down or, you know, we had to take a different approach to something, it's not personal against the group or the person that came up with that. You know, it should be taken from a bigger picture perspective of what's right for the company or, more importantly, what's right for our customers if you're a, a company that is producing um, you know, customer-facing software or services. You know, what's the right thing to do by them rather than, how can we get things out quickest to the market? And I think those kind of questions, you can, you can start to have that discussion once you've got this shared understanding and basis, which within the book, we've termed security culture. But I think it really is you know, just that basis upon which we're all going to be talking the same language and we understand why security is important for the, for the well-being of the organization and the people that rely on it overall. Absolutely. You touched on this too, that... A lot of the work that security does, if they do their work well, it's invisible. There's no big win. This happened. It's, it's really about the things that don't happen a lot of times in security. And I think that sometimes means that other parts of the organization devalue security. I think that can that that certainly can happen. You know, the, if, if the security team is doing its job, you know, 
right. And you know, there's always an element of luck in here. Uh, the, the hard work that they're doing that they're doing may never really be apparent. People might not understand the amount of hard work that went in for bad things not happening. And obviously, you know, that's difficult to quantify as well from a from a management perspective. Pointing to things that didn't happen is is harder to do. And I think this often has had the unfortunate side effect that security teams measure themselves and measure their success from the perspective of you know bad things that they stopped happening, which may well be the case, but it's hard to measure. And it's actually quite a negative mes- message. And it can somewhat force security teams into the mindset that the way that they can stop the bad things happening is by trying to make sure as few things change as possible. So you know, if we're, if we're not changing our risk profile, then we can't be blamed for um, if bad things were happening. And I think this can this can generate some pretty unhealthy habits and can start to kind of build a silo around the security team because if they have the mindset that they don't want anything to change, then they're going to say no to most anything that offers a change up. You know, it may be super innovative and could be a fantastic um, opportunity for the company, but comes with risks. And you know, the security team doesn't want to take on board those risks. So if it's measuring itself by what it blocks, it's going to block a lot more things, going to try and stop anything bad happening. If, however, you know, and this is something that we advocate in the book, security teams should measure themselves on what they enable and what they enable to happen securely, that's a much more tangible and positive way of, of kind of measuring the worth of that security team and, and how effective that they are. You know, any old security team, whether it's good or bad, can say no to everything. Good security teams that you know, understand the business, understand what the development groups are trying to get done. It's really more about like what are those crazy things that they can enable the business to do securely, and that's going to require some you know, some novel problem solving. That's going to mean that you're not just going to take solutions off the shelf and, and throw them at every problem. You're going to have to you know, come up with new ways to solve things, and they're going to be hard problems to solve. I think you know in, the, in some talks that I've done, you know, I mentioned this. If your security team is, is, is one that isn't liking to solve new novel problems, you've probably got the wrong security team. You know, if they're people that just want to kind of sit back and say no to everything, they're probably not the people that you want to be working on, uh, worrying about security for your organization. So the way that the security team measures itself, I think really sets that mindset early on and measuring what, what is enabled and not what is blocked for me feels like a much, much better way of Having that security team that people want to work with and want to interact with, as opposed to a security team that people are actively trying to avoid. Yeah, I believe actually, uh, I'm hoping to talk about a few points later on where you talk about enabling um, and not blocking. So we've got some great conversation coming up on that. But before we move on to that, I'd love to know if you have any tips for perhaps someone in a managerial role or just part of a security team that's looking to improve the culture around security in their organization. I would know, I feel like a lot of times I hear conversations where people say, this is our culture, this is the culture that I work within. And there's less conversation about how to proactively change it or how to proactively manage it. And I think that's a bit of a misperception sometimes where people are thinking that culture is what it is and have less of a role in actually managing it. So I guess it's a twofold question here. One, do you see security culture as something that's very much manageable and you can proactively change? And also, how would you recommend that other people um, create change within their security culture? Great set of questions. And I, I think security culture is definitely manageable. And I would probably go further and say, you know, if you don't take an active part within crafting your security culture, then you're going to end up with one that you might not like. And it's, it's probably going to serve you less well than one that you, you know, had an active participation in crafting. Every company has a security culture. 
it's your choice whether you decide to kind of own that and define what it is, whether it's something that is going to happen to you and, you know, is out of your control. I think everybody listening would want a culture that they have input and, and you know, influence over rather than just like lying prone and letting it happen to them. So I believe that every company already has a security culture. It may not be the one that they want, but they already have one. So the question is more, you know, can we, can we tool people up to be able to have, um, build a security culture that they feel works well for their larger organization and, and is in keeping with the larger organization's culture? And you know, is, it, is it one that actually moves the needle forward on making things more secure? Or is it one that you know, we're just feeling good about ourselves because now we can say we have a security culture? Well, it's not making a meaningful difference. So there's probably not much point putting the effort into crafting this thing. So I think you know, we absolutely can take control of that security culture. And we'll go further and say that we, we have to. Um, otherwise, you're just going to end up in a, in a situation that you have a culture that is not one that you feel is serving your organization well. You know, beyond that, like, you know, how, to, how to start making those changes, the first approach is really what you've just outlined. You know, if, you're, if you're asking those questions about you know, what is our security culture? Like how, how does the rest of the company think about security? How does the rest of the company view our security team or in some smaller organizations, maybe it's only one or two people. Do people go out of their way to include us in conversations and decision-making? Or do they prefer to kind of you know, chance it and hope that we, you know, we don't notice and, and they squeak under the radar? That says a lot about your security culture. If people aren't actively engaging with the subject matter experts, well, something's wrong there, right? You know, would you, you've got lawyers in your company um, and they're experts in whatever area of law they practice. If you were a manager in a group and you know, had a legal question and didn't go to the, your lawyers, well, you'd be negligent. Hopefully, your, you know, your lawyers are people that are approachable and, and they can help you with those legal problems that you have. But as soon as we flip you know, law to security, there's a lot of people that like, try and avoid any engagement with the security group because that security group might not be the nicest people to deal with. You know, they may be belittling and they may be you know, pejorative in the way that they, that they share uh, their knowledge of, of how to do something differently or how to secure something. So those early questions that you've just outlined, you know, just have a look and, and that like a deep introspection of how do people think about security at our organization? Is it central to what they're doing or is it something that this is superfluous? Is it something that they go out of their way? They expend energy to avoid. People are expending energy to avoid your security team and the experts there. You've probably got a pretty crappy security culture. If there's a lot of blame going around and anytime something goes wrong, I mean, people are, are shouted out and you know, there's people that are fired just as scapegoats. Again, you've probably got a pretty crappy security culture. So, you know, what's a good security culture? Well, you know, it's obviously the inverse of a lot of the things that we've, you know, we've said. You, know, you do want people to be engaged with your security team. You do want people to understand why security is important and it's not just this overhead that has to be done to keep people happy. That, that is central to how, how an organization needs to operate and part of that organization's responsibilities in the 21st century. And there's a great quote from... Corey Doctorow, who obviously I'm sure people listening are very familiar with, and he released a book way back in 2014 now um, called Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. And there was a quote within there. I mean, the whole book's fantastic. I would encourage um, folks to read it if, if they haven't had the pleasure of doing so already. But there's a quote in there which I really feel is the is seed for many parts of security culture that follow. And, and the quote, sociable conversation is the inevitable product of socializing. Sociable conversation is the way in which human beings establish trusted relationships among themselves. So it's just a sentence or two long, 
Um, but I feel there's so much captured in that quote. And if your first step on building a security culture is that engagement between your security team or your security experts and you know, essentially everybody else in the company and trying to build up that, you know, that trust, the relationships between the security team and non-security people and, you know, that empathy and understanding of, um, and that goes both directions, both understanding of the security team and understanding by the security team. That's a great first step to actually getting a good finger on the pulse as to what is your current security culture. And then, you know, what are the things that you might like to change with that to make it work better for you? So important to consider that security culture. And you have some principles that you advise people to consider when they're building their security culture. I'd love to kind of go over a few of those and if you could give us some examples of what these might look like in action. The first of those is enable, don't block, which I think most of these are a little bit obvious just from um, <laughs> how you've structured them, which is fantastic. But uh, can you tell us a little bit more about enable, don't block and what that looks like within an organization? Yeah, and I think and I think we touched on this a little bit already. You know, it's about that you know, security teams measuring themselves on on the things that they've allowed uh, enabled to happen securely, rather than than just focusing on all of those things that could have introduced risk that they managed to block. So, you know, that that this is really the principle where the security team is taking responsibility for understanding that, except in a few rare circumstances. The entire business isn't stacked around security. Security is a required aspect of doing business, but their whole business isn't about being as secure as possible. It's as secure as it needs to be. And you know, getting that security team to you know, reach out to those other groups, whether they're agile developers or anybody else within the organization, and understanding what those groups are trying to do, you know, whatever the project may be, whether it is a, a technical project or something else, understanding what they're trying to do understanding what their motivations are and why it's important for the organization, and then working with that group to help make that happen. Even if there's security concerns there, cool. Well, that's our job is to like find solutions to these concerns and working with those teams to help them get what they need to do done, but securely. As soon as you start to do that, as soon as the security team comes to the table as problem solvers, as people within a larger group that are all working towards the same thing, you know, having project X release and obviously be secure, then you're going to start to get included in so many more conversations because people want your input. If you're the people there that are saying no and just blocking everything, well, you're going to be excluded because people don't want to hear that. So, you know, going out with yes ands, yes, we can do this and we need to do this, yes, buts, yes, we need to do this, but we need to be careful of this. You've always got those no's that you can keep up your sleeve. There's, there's, you, know, you always have that ability to play the ace card of, of saying no to something, but it should be the exception and not the rule. Save that for when you really, really need it. Because in reality, you've got a finite number of no's before people switch off and just avoid you. So I think that enabling and not, not blocking side of things is really a task for the security team to you know, engage with the rest of the company and show that they're problem solvers and not just naysayers. I really love the positive spin on that. When we're thinking of security teams as enablers versus blockers, the words there are so important. I'm an editor, so I can't help but <laughs> but notice that the words here. But when we when we change that, it really ref, like reframes how we're looking at the situation, and it looks at changing the role that people, both in security teams and external from security teams, view what security is doing. So I really love that change in the words that we're using to describe what security is doing. Um, so enabling. Yes, I'm feeling inspired yeah. to go enable. Thumbs up for enables. Enabling. 
Oh, well, enabling has some negative connotations, but we'll leave that alone. Um, <laughs> so the next principle is transparently secure. Can you tell us a little bit about this principle? Yeah. So I, I, again, this this kind of comes back to a responsibility that that is put onto the security team or the security practitioners. Again, I think there's a pretty bad habit that's developed over the years within the industry. And this may be somewhat related to some of the personalities that are naturally attracted to security. People like to think that they're secret squirrels. You know, they work in security and everything that they look at is you know, super important and they need to be you know, in their own little special room with a you know, swipe card pass lock on, on the door and any security people can get in there. And it's this kind of like, you know, pretending to be secret squirrels and um, that everything that they look at is so important, other teams poss couldn't possibly see it. And I'd probably challenge that. You know, I've worked in some a variety of different organizations with different security requirements. And even at the government level and, and you know, some of the most restrictive security environments that I've worked in, there's still only like a, a percentage of my work that wasn't shareable with others within that organization. There'd be some stuff that, yep, needed to be kept um, aside and for particular eyes only, but lots of it really could be shared with, with most anybody in that organization and it wouldn't cause a problem. And I think this, this propensity for security teams to try and be very um, closed means that we lose this great opportunity to actually spread awareness and, and education. So if a security team is really open about what they're doing, and key point here is and why, like why are they doing it? If they're open with that and you know, people can see what they're doing, ask questions, that's the best opportunity to spread you know, awareness, understanding, education that a security team will have within that organization because they're going to be able to spread security knowledge that are based on very real examples that are important to that organization. So you know, whether that's like you know, positive patterns or negative patterns, you know, things to do or things not to do, using real world scenarios that are meaningful for that organization is the best way that you can drive understanding and empathy. That becomes really difficult if your security team is locked away behind, you know, behind uh, in their own special room and they don't really share anything about what they're doing or only very selectively. So the transparently secure is essentially the more transparent you can be, the more effective your security program is going to be because you're being able to build up that security culture, build up that understanding, and actually people will understand some of the challenges that you're facing and be able to take very relevant examples to them back, you know, that have the context on that. And then they'll be able to put that into action far easier than just like in textbook security education, textbook security training. So I think it's a really powerful moment that is often lost through this desire to be secret schools. And I would say in most cases, that's just not necessary and is actually counterproductive to having a more holistic, more secure overall security program within an organization. The benefits of being open far outweigh some of the cons that may come with the team reorganizing in the way that it shares its work. Once again, very empowering information there. And I think it's one of those things where I don't know that people always think about it. It becomes ingrained in how people are functioning. Exactly. So the next principle you had was don't play the blame game, which once again seems pretty clear, but I'd love to hear you expand on that topic a little bit. Yeah. And this, I mean, this is really a very natural extension of a lot of DevOps work that has been in place for, for a long time now. And John Allspore is really the impetus of, of this. And I learned a lot about blameless postmortems from John and you know, took a lot of that to heart and then start to think about how that would apply in the security world. So for folks that aren't, aren't as familiar with, with John Allspore's work, he's uh, you know, a senior leader within ops, obviously well-known within the ops circles. And blameless postmortems um, was a, a methodology and an approach which he was a strong advocate for to be able to get ops teams to the root cause of a problem. So for example, if there was an outage, how to get those engineers 
to actually get to the root cause and not just take the easy way out of blaming an individual um, or an individual's decisions for what really is the often a failing of a very complex system. It's very rare that it would come down to a single person or this like concept of human error. There's lots of things that led to somebody's decision to take a particular path and understanding like why they thought they, that was the right thing to do really helps you understand the root cause of the problems and then you know to be able to understand that and build solutions. Um, that resonated very strongly with me and I felt that that was equally as important in security situations as it were as it was in operational situations. And you know, we see the blame game being played a lot with security. And you know, if there is some kind of you know, a breach or some kind of security failure, many cases in in the in the press you will hear that people have been that have been fired. You know, various different whether it's senior or, or more junior people, but somebody has been made the scapegoat for that security lapse. In reality, you know, my my background is in in offensive work. It's very rare that you know uh, a real attack, a real scenario, is a single step affair. And it's very rare that the root cause for whatever the problem was that you know people managed to take advantage of to to get into a system was from a single root cause. These are you know organizations are very complex, and if we're taking the easy way out of just pointing at someone and saying, "Well, you took a dumb decision, so you get fired," all that means is that people are going to get scared. Um, they're not actually going to be open as to what led them to take the decisions that they took that ultimately led to some kind of security failure. And if they're not being open with what led them to the particular decisions that they that they made, then we're not going to be able to do good root cause analysis and, and you know, put mitigating controls in place. So you know, the the TLDR on the blame game is you know if people are fearful for what's going to come out when they actually tell the truth, then they're not going to tell you the truth because they don't want to lose their job. If they're in an environment that they believe it's a safe environment for them to share exactly what they did and why, and that that's going to be used as input to improve this overall complex situation which you know, any organization really is, just this very complex system, then people are going to be open and it becomes an engineering problem. Again, the, the difference that you see when people actually understand and buy into kind of you know, blameless postmortems as a way to solve problems, uh, engineers love it. They, you know, they are the most active participants in some of these postmortems um, because they're problem solvers by nature. You know, as, as soon as that fear of you know, unjust retribution and just trying to kind of get some heads to roll to make the problem go away is taken away. They're, fun, you know, they're the most innovative problem solvers, um, even if they're not of the security discipline. They're engineers and they love to solve problems. As soon as you take that stigma away and the, and the fear, people will actually be very open with what they did, what led them to that decision, why they thought it was a good idea at the time. And it's from there that then you can understand what mitigations that you can put in place to help people make the right decision in the future. And I think you know, there's just so much easy outs for people trying to blame people to then uh, not actually address the root cause of whatever the security issue was that, again, um, is, a, is a facet of a what I would call a lazy security team, quite honestly. Yeah, I like that it addresses the complexity. We've talked a lot about how security culture really fits in with technology and that those relationships are so entangled that we can't really untangle them. So the next principle is scale security, empower the edges. What does that look like within an organization? Yeah, and I, again, I think this is this is one of those very people-focused aspects of what I you know, believe makes a, a compelling security program. And you know, part of this is if we if we really believe that security is inherent to everything that an organization does, and certainly if it's like a you know, technology company that's producing code, 
as that company grows, and obviously we've seen lots of companies that grow very, very rapidly, the security team is not going to scale proportionally with the rest of the company. There, quite honestly, aren't enough good security people around to do that. And the costs, because of you know there aren't very many good security people around, there aren't enough security people, they cost a lot of money. So you can't be expected to grow your security team at the same rate as the rest of the organization is growing. Not enough people, not enough money. It just doesn't work well. So then the question comes, well, how can you scale security if your security team isn't scaled proportionally with your organization? And I think this, again, comes to back to some of the importance of culture because you're sharing the responsibility for security outside of just a small group of people and making it a shared responsibility for everyone across the company. And so if you're doing that, you can do that with, through culture. Um, and also you can do that by you know, pushing the decision-making to the people that are actually closest to the problem. So whether that is you know, developers, whether that is you know, uh, individual contributors, engineers within your security team, move, it, move the decision-making uh, away from the management tier and towards the edges as much as possible. Let's assume that most of the people working in the organization are responsible people who want to do the right thing and are motivated to do the right thing because they're invested in the organization. They are often the people that understand the best solution to the problem because they're closest to it. Let's try and move away from this idea that management has all of the answers because often management's too far removed from the problem. And you know, let, let's let the people that are actually working on the problem propose solutions for it and to feel empowered to be able to do so rather than being so scared around there's this security thing that we know is important and we don't touch it and we need to wait for someone else's blessing. Um, that is going to slow down an agile environment uh, no end. I mean, it, it probably wouldn't look very agile if every security decision needed to be made by you know, one or a small group of people. So the idea to kind of push out security responsibility to the edges and push out security accountability to the edges as well helps people actually feel responsible and then make decisions that they feel are the right ones to make, pull in the right people if you need subject matter experts into that decision-making process as well, but really take control of that and not just as soon as something becomes a security problem, you kind of hands off and leave it to somebody else to sort out. And, and you know, that's not going to engender that shared responsibility of security across the organization. So just a different way of saying, I think, you know, making sure that everyone is part of the process that is gone through for security solutions, as well as identification of um, security issues within an organization or within a product. Your next principle is the who is just as important as the how. Could you fill us in on what that means? Yeah. So I think this was... This kind of came from a talk that I did in, in New Zealand a good few years ago. And I had a slide that I think I said my like number one rule of security hiring. And then there was a, you know, an animation on the slide. It just came up in big letters, uh, don't hire assholes. And a lot of people took photos of that slide and they all went a little bit crazy on Twitter. Um, it seemed a lot of people agreed with, with that, which was great. I mean, I thought it was a relatively obvious thing, but, uh, it seemed to gain some traction, which, which would suggest that a lot of people think that there's, uh, you know, a lot of assholes working in security, which, uh, you know, having worked in security for many years, um, there's, there's, there's certainly a few out there. And the principle is really around, again, it comes back to being very people focused. Security teams can often staff up with some incredibly technical people that are very, very talented, either security engineers or, you know, security attackers have, you know, a lot of that technical security knowledge and really can put it to, you know, really effective use. Unfortunately, there are a subset of those people that really don't have great interpersonal skills and can often turn people off to actually ever interacting with a security team again. You know, they're very, very pejorative and they, 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 can, they can 
belittle people when they're explaining, you know, whatever the solution may be or, or trying to kind of get to the root of the problem. And people don't really like working with them. And there's, you know, there's a level of arrogance that can often go along with that. So even if you've got a fantastically technical security team, you also need to understand the, you know, the, the, the softer side, you know, the people side to that. And if you end up with people who really are an asshole, you know, they're great at security, but they're not serving the larger function of making the company more secure because people avoid interacting with them, get rid of them. I mean, you, you're, you are not lumbered with them. You, you really need to understand that the negative impact, the toxicity that can come from you know, one or a small number of, of toxic individuals within a security team can really destroy all of the other work that you've been doing on security culture and being approachable and being people focused. That can all be done undone very rapidly um, by a few bad apples within a group. So um, be conscious of how the security team interacts with people. And if there are people that aren't so great on the people side, either pop them into a role that requires them to interact with other people less, or maybe there's a different challenge out there for them. But this has definitely been a principle that people have uh, seems to have resonated with a lot of people. And anecdotally, you know, people, conversations that I've had, it, I think it would be fair to say that many people's uh, ideas and interactions with security teams have been defined by security assholes, which suggests to me that there's a pretty big problem um, out there of, of team staffed by people that aren't necessarily allowing uh, a positive security culture to develop. I thought it was an interesting point that you brought up that not only would this perhaps have a negative effect on this specific organization at this specific time, but it could influence how people who maybe leave the organization decide to interact with other security teams or have long-term impacts. That's really sobering. Yeah. I mean, often, you know, one bad experience with a security team at one organization can definitely set a pattern that people follow. Um, you know, they would assume that all security teams are like that. A really good book, again, another book that I think is, is great for folks to read, one by Robert Sutton. Uh, it's just called the, the No Asshole Rule, Building a Civilized Workplace and, and Surviving One That Isn't. This, this book definitely was the impetus for me to have like a, a pretty pro provocative, like don't hire assholes slide. But you know, the way that Robert discusses this within the book, um, it's only a short book, it's a pretty quick read, um, definitely uh, evolved my worldview on on the importance of the negative, potential negative aspects of those kind of toxic individuals. So people are interested in that. It's a, a, a an interesting Sunday week. Fantastic. Well, thanks for the recommendation. Um, I wanted to jump over briefly. I know we talked earlier about how your role is, you know, a bit managerial, cultural, but you also work on some really great technical things. So I know that you wrote our section on external reviews in the book, and I would love to talk briefly about that. Um, I guess my first question is, should all Agile security teams use external reviews or is there a certain maturity level that you should hit before you consider hiring an external review? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think that's that's one that's kind of impossible to answer in the in the abstract. Um, but I think you touched on the on the key point because um, it really is con contextual to, to every organization. Um, and that's the maturity. External security reviews aren't necessarily the cheapest thing that you're ever going to buy. And you want to make sure that you, you know, get good value for your money. So ha you know, paying a group of hackers to like rip apart your products, if it's just like the first alpha of this thing, or you're, you know, you're in an early stage of a company, you're trying to get like you know, your seed round or whatever it may be, that might not be the best use of your time. You know, is your product going to continue to evolve? Uh, you know, is this the version that's actually going to ship? I think a lot of that investment may be misplaced. Um, early stages, you may actually have a much better use of your money 
kind of bringing in security architects and security engineers, people that can give you advice on how to architecturally structure whatever you're building and get you off kind of pointed in the right direction. That may be a better use of your money than paying for pen testers after you built this something, whatever the something may be, that may not have really been built with too much security in mind. However, you know, at some point, your product is going to get to a place where you're going to be releasing it. And I would expect you're going to be making revenue off that in some way, shape or form. Part of that for, for me, you know, if you're, if you're making res- revenue off something, there's a responsibility that you, know, you have to have whatever you're about to ship tested by a separate set of eyes and the people that made it. So no matter how mature your organization is, there's huge value to having those eyes on that product that uh, were not part of its inception. And when is the right time for like bringing in external people for a pen test? really does depend on, on each organization. But my suggestion would be that, you know, before anything ships, you should definitely have some external eyes put on that. What the right time in the development lifecycle is um, really would come down to the products and the processes that are in place. But I did also touch on earlier the, you know, the importance of secure design. And if you're, you know, an early stage company, it may actually be cheaper for you to, you know, kind of get those early stage reviews rather than trying to patch it after the fact that something's been uh, you know, something's been designed possibly wrong, so that it's got flaws in it from a security perspective. But actually, you know, bring people in early on and, and get some good, solid security advice. You know, design with that in mind, build with that in mind, and then you can leave it a little bit longer, perhaps, or as the the, the development team and the the product is maturing before release, and then bring in a final set of eyes for external review. Possible caveat there is bug bounties. You know, bug bounties become you know, increasingly popular. There seems to be a consensus that bug bounties are kind of like a cheap security review. Um, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. And there seems to be an undercurrent, certainly within the, on the Twitters and, you know, in, in some uh, kind of various blog articles that if you're not running a bug bounty, you're, you know, somehow negligent, you know, that everybody now should be running a bug bounty. And I would actually come back to your, you know, to the, to the question that you asked. I actually think that people need to be far more mature to be running bug bounties than they do to be having you know, penetration tests done or, or uh, application reviews done because of the interaction with the community and um, you know the never you know once you've opened the floodgates it's really difficult to, to close them again. So I think there's 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 often advice that before paying for like professional pen tests go the bug bounty route first. I'm not sure I would I would agree with that in in every sense. So it really comes about understanding. What's the value that you're going to be getting from these external reviews? And you know, does that feel like money well spent, given where the product is in its in its um, development and where your development organization or organization is overall in its kind of security maturity? So it's probably not the most uh, black and white answer to that question. Definitely, uh, and it depends. But I think coming back to understanding what the value is that you hope to get out of an external review will help clue you in as to whether the the time is is the the right one now to have that done. Yeah, that makes sense. And frankly, I feel like there's very few questions in security that are just a no, don't do that, or a yes, do that. Um, there's so much complexity in organizations, as you noted earlier in the discussion, are so different. But it certainly makes sense to think about, did you build security in in the first place? If not, perhaps you should address that first before spending a lot of money to bring in an external reviewer. Because the, the, the worry is, you know, I've, I've worked as a pen tester for, for years and years, and those kind of gigs were always the easy ones because you knew you were going to have findings. This was like a very early product and from a team that hadn't really thought about security much. It's an easy gig. You're going to have pages and pages of findings filled. Most of those are going to be kind of like 
easy to find, you know, easy to exploit stuff. You know, people can pay a lot of money for that. If you're paying for a pen test, like work the pen testers hard, um, make them, you know, make them work for their money. They're not cheap and, you know, they enjoy a challenge. So make sure that the, the pen testers that are doing your, your work are actually having to work for their money. And I think this is an area that a bug bounty can actually be super useful. If you've got your organization to a level of maturity that, you know, external security reviews are a thing, maybe you're doing them regularly on your infrastructure as well as particular applications before they release. Well, that's great to get to that organization, um, level of organizational maturity. Doesn't mean that you have to kind of let up on your, on your pen testers or your security testers. And, you know, I think a bug bounty can actually be super useful if you're at that level of maturity where you can take advantage of a bug bounty. I used to budget essentially one pen test's worth of money as the bug bounty pool per year. And you would get pen tested, you know, around the clock um, by these bug bounties. The effect that I saw more often than not, we sometimes had good bounties raised, but often they were not necessarily the most complex attacks, just small problems here and there. It made the, the, all of the other pen tests far more effective because all the low-hanging fruit has been swept up by the bug bounties. And that means that there's nothing left for the pen testers, nothing easy left for the pen testers. So that means that they work hard. Um, and as a, you know, like I say, an ex-pen tester, I know that you know, projects where you're not coming up with good findings, more resources get thrown on those projects, more more pen testers will get pulled in, more senior pen testers will get pulled in to try and get like good findings because the company wants to you know, present a really good report to whoever's um, pulled them in for the engagement. So you're getting far better value for your money if you're paying for a pen test. If you've had a bug bounty working in the background, kind of sweeping up the low-hanging fruit all the time, this means that you're going to work your pen testers hard. So I actually believe that uh, if you are at that level that you can have a, a structured external testing program and can deal with a with a bug bounty as well. The bug bounty will actually make your external pen testing program far more effective because you're going to make those people work harder. Uh, fantastic advice. Thanks for digging into that topic on external reviews. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you co-wrote and recently released a book on agile application security. For those listeners who would like to read the book, it can be found on Savari Books Online or on Amazon or at other major retailers. Rich, congratulations on the recent publication of your book, and thank you so much for joining me on the O'Reilly Security Podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can reach Rich on Twitter at IODBoy. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Security Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud, so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.